Thank you, uh, Andrew. Thank you so much for your warm welcome, and it's lovely to be here again. Uh, lovely uh, to be in your new building or your renovated building. It's just, uh, I'm sure you're, you're delighted with it. You have every reason to be, and uh, it's an act of faith when you invest in your building uh, because you believe that your witness has a future and the Lord is going to do great things. We might not see any of it, but uh, I always get excited when I when I uh, see new buildings because it, it reminds me that we invest uh, to the future. I'm also delighted that Alistair is here. I think it's just tremendous that um, you are investing in the Word. And that's not because um, uh, he's the only one that can bring the Word. Of course, uh, we have to be ready in season and out of season and I, I just know how much you love the Bible and love the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a real joy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And thank you for asking me to, to preach on this psalm. I have never preached on it, I have to confess. Uh, I grew up with it. I grew up listening to dozens of sermons on this psalm. I guess I, I, I just felt that, well, all the sermons on it, have, they've already been preached. What, what more do I have to add and of course, uh, as Andrew has pointed out, they, are, they have all uh, focused on the psalm as a description of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have every reason to understand it that way. However, uh, I just want to avoid just two errors before we go any further. One is the error of ignoring, or rather avoiding, uh, the psalm in its original context, it was written by David. And whilst I believe with all my heart uh, that the psalm does give a peculiar description of the sufferings at Calvary, it was written by David uh, a thousand years before Jesus was born. So I'd like us, first of all, to just spend a little time thinking about it in its original context. But then I want to quickly get on to the psalm in its messianic context uh, in the light of what we know about Jesus and his suffering. But then the, the second error that I think people sometimes make is that they avoid the second part of the psalm, the psalm that ends in triumph. I'm sure you'll have noticed, even as we read it tonight, that the, the vastness of the contrast that there is between the beginning and the end two-thirds of the psalm are about suffering the most intense horrific suffering in fact it just doesn't get worse than the suffering that's described in the psalm and yet the psalm uh, astonishingly ends on a high it ends with worship and praise and triumph and i want us to look at that uh, section of the psalm i don't want us to spend so long on the suffering that we don't have time for the triumph. So three things, typical pre-church minister, three things. First of all, the psalmist's original context. Secondly, the psalmist's messianic context. And then the psalm in its missional context, because that's what it's about, isn't it? It's about mission. It, ends, it begins with suffering and ends with people coming to faith in Jesus Christ and coming to recognize that Jesus has done it. That's the way the psalm finishes. He's done it. And that's what we believe tonight, that he's done it. He's done everything. Everything that we needed 
has been done for our salvation. And that's what people need to hear this evening. That's what we're about. That's what the church is for. And uh, so these three things then, uh, first of all, uh, the psalm in its original context as it was written by David. I don't know if you ever watch drama programs on TV. I don't really have much time to watch them. But if you if you watch, the last thing you want to do is to start watching a drama when it's there's six episodes and you start watching episode three. And you don't know what's come before. So if you do start watching episode three, you have to put up with two minutes of previously where there's an encapsulation, there's a summary of what's going on before in order to get the context. That's the way it feels when you begin to read this psalm. You begin to, you think that, well, what's happened before? Who's writing the psalm? What's happened to him? And why is, is he in this place of dereliction and abandonment and, and horrific suffering? It's almost like the scene opens, if you were to imagine a dramatization of this psalm. It opens with a close-up of this man's face. It's David. We know it's David because we're told. And it's like a close-up of his face. And he's crying out with all his might, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the first question you want to ask is, Where is he? What's happening to him? What's, what's going on before? And you don't get to find out. There is no previously in the psalm and the reason there's no previously is because god doesn't want us to know what 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 where the psalmist is because it's not important all the information has to be taken from the wording itself the description the way that david writes poetically and uh, symbolically but there's no question that it makes uncomfortable reading doesn't it you can't read it over a cup of coffee you can't read it and then just rest easy because the suffering it just hits you the way that the way that uh, he describes it for us so what you have to do is you have to forget it could have been several different different episodes in his life but none of them quite fit i'm sure that most of you are, are familiar with the life of david and you'll know that on many occasions during his life uh, there were difficulties and dangers but none of them quite fit the detail that he gives us here none of them quite fit now i'm not saying that they didn't But the detail is so specific. They pierced my hands and my feet, for example. They divided my clothing. We don't read about that ever having happened to David. All of the description, everything that we learn about it has to be taken from the wording itself. And not any episode that we know of in the life of David himself. But what we do know is this, that the suffering is that of hostility. It's not disease. It's not some time of illness in his life. It's not an accident that he's had. Sometimes our suffering happens because we become sick or because we suffer the effects of old age or because we've had an accident 
or because of a death in the family or something like that. There's no question about the kind of suffering he's talking about. It's hostility and it's of the very worst kind. People hate him and they can't wait to bring him down. And everything that he describes to us is because of the hatred of his enemies. Now, I hope that you and I never have to suffer that kind of loneliness. We only have to imagine it, what it must be like to have somebody who actually wants to kill you, who actually want, they've made it their ambition, their objective to bring you down, to not just to bring you, to destroy your reputation. There may be some, there may be plenty of those around, but these people actually want to kill him. They want to destroy him. And he describes all of this in terms of the kind of behavior that there is. He can only think of animal behavior. That these people who hate him so much, they've been reduced to animal instincts. He talks about lions. Well, he talks about himself as a worm. He goes into the animal kingdom in verse 6. And he says that bulls encompass me in verse 12. Bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. So the bull has become a lion. And then they become dogs. Verse 15, I think, or 16. For dogs encompass me. Now, I don't think there's any reason to to think that there's a difference between the lions and the bulls and the dogs. He's describing the same thing. These are his enemies who who want to... to, to, to they're, they're so frenzied. Have you ever watched these... These uh, animal programs, there's loads of them on YouTube. I watch them sometimes, you know, uh, I, you know, just because to, to, to remind myself of the nature of wild animals. And you see them chasing a zebra or a gazelle or, or, or something like that. And, and, and the lion just, it's almost like he's, he's just consumed with with one thing and he puts his own life in danger and of course he's surrounded by his 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 pride and they just go for this creature and they just and it doesn't you know sometimes these creatures are are big and they're quite strong but these lions just don't give up and even it's danger to themselves they just they're determined to bring this 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 poor creature down. My mother always used to say to me, whenever I watched anything like that, as a wee boy, she used to say to me, ah, don't worry. The lion always makes sure that the prey is dead before it does anything else. I later found out that that is rubbish. (laughs) The lion does not wait until the prey is dead. And I warn you, don't continue watching. If you ever come across a video like that, don't continue watching if you're faint-hearted. The lion doesn't care. There is no mercy. And that's what's happening to David. There is no mercy. These people want to take him apart. Limb from limb. Like I say, I don't know what episode he's describing. 
But it's horrific. We're not, we're not meant to know what episode. The Lord doesn't want us to know. We don't need to know. What the Lord wants us to concentrate on is the sheer hatred, the animosity that there is being directed and will not stop until he is dead. And that's exactly what happens. When you read, as you read the psalm, it's peculiar language that's used to describe the effect of the suffering on his own body. Death is not just the next stage. It's almost like he's describing his own living death. You're, you're left wondering, how does he have the strength to even think about the kind of pain he's going through? My, I am poured out like water, verse 14. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shared. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. He doesn't even have any strength in his tongue. Let alone anything else. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me. I count all my bones. Verse 17 they stare and gloat over me. They do, and, but you, um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, I count all my bones. There's nothing left of this man. He's, he's, th- this is a description of death. It doesn't get worse than this. It doesn't get lonelier than this. Because he's not only suffering the physical effects of wherever he is, but he's suffering the psychological effects of being mocked and derided. He's on his own. And here's what arguably is the worst bit for David. Because where is God in all of this? Is God going to come and rescue him? It doesn't look like it. He knows that he is in covenant relationship with God. He knows that centuries before, God has called out his forefather, Abraham, and entered into a special relationship with him in which God said to him, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to multiply your seed after you. And to some extent, here is David centuries afterwards, and much of this has happened. Abraham's seed has been multiplied. There are now millions of them, and God has given them their land. He set a king over them, and he's done great things in the history. You only have to think of some of the, the amazing things that God did in the past, like the parting of the Red Sea. David could remember all of that when, David, when God stepped in, when his people were in great danger. The Egyptians were coming after them. They too wanted to kill God's people. They wanted to destroy them. And what happened at the last moment? God stepped in and he said to Moses, you stand and watch what I'm going to do. He parted the Red Sea so that all of the people walked across on dry land. And then, of course, you know the story that God, God brought the sea together again and destroyed the enemies. Why is God not doing that now? If I am in covenant relationship to God, and if God has promised, as he did, 
that I am going to be king over Israel as he did, then why am I in this place of shame and darkness and pain and loneliness? And why are these people having such a field day? And why is God not intervening? That's the problem. And that's how the psalm opens up. My God, my God, you're my God. You're not a God of random. You're not a heathen God. You're not a pagan God. You're my God. And yet you've forsaken me. I'm left here. I'm thrown under a bus. I'm left. I'm hung out to dry. What is going on? That's the situation that the psalm invites us into. And we too are to ask, why is this happening? That's the whole point. That's why we're not given. We're not told what the previously is. We're just asked to look uncomfortably at this, this man as he writhes in agony. And as his, he describes how close he is being brought to death itself. And as he tries to, to reconcile that with the relationship he knows he has with God. And yet, and yet, somehow or other, in the midst of such darkness and pain, David knows, he knows, it's not just I, I hope that things will work out, but he knows that there is a future, that the story's not finished, that somehow or other this is going to this is going to all come together and God is going to be praised universally. Now I don't know how he can say that because that's not the way it appeared. But somehow in the eye of faith he, he just was able to see enough to be able to cast himself on God and his mercy and his triumph. So that's the psalm in the context of David. I think it's important to, to, to set the scene before we move on to the messianic context. And the reason we want to talk about that is because some of the language that is used in this psalm is absolutely extraordinary. And we've already, we've already been introduced to the idea that it's the psalm understood in the light of the rest of the Bible, is such a striking description of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can quite confidently conclude that that's the way it's to be understood. I have no hesitation in saying that at all for two reasons. First of all, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12, I think it is, there is a direct reference to that psalm as predicting the suffering and the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have the New Testament as our authority to see this as, to understand this as a messianic psalm. That's what we mean by a messianic psalm. Now, some people think that all the psalms are messianic. I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't think all of them are, but I think that there are more than we think. But this is definite. There's no question about Psalm 22. Nobody would deny. Any, anybody who understands or knows the Bible at all has to see the striking resemblance in the language that David uses to describe his coming. For example, he says this, that they parted 
they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, that's precisely what happened to the Lord Jesus. At the same time as the mocking crowds derided him for the fact that he trusted in God. Where is God in all of this? At the same time as the piercing of his hands and his feet. Now, all of these, if you put them all together, they all add up to the same event, which is the suffering. Little did they, Have you ever thought of this? That here is David, he's writing a psalm, he's writing this poem about his own suffering and, and his own faithful hope in what, God's, what God will do out of this. And unbeknown to him, he's actually describing an even greater suffering. Even when, when David, I don't think things could have got worse for David on this occasion, whenever it was. But he's describing an even more intensely horrific moment that was going to happen a thousand years in the future to his own descendant, to his own son. And that son could say exactly the same as David did. That son himself could, could know, could, he was in a peculiar, an even more peculiar relationship with God than David was because not only was this son loved by God and not only did this son love God, he was God. The Son of God, equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And not only was this man beloved in covenant relationship to God, God the Father said of him, This is my Son whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. No, no, David could say that he was a man after God's own heart. That's the way that God described him. But here in Jesus, you have someone who is God himself, the beloved son, the perfectly beloved son, and who has never fallen in any way. He's the sinless son of God. And yet, he too is hated He's derided, he's mocked, he's rejected, he's been betrayed by one of his own friends. He's been handed over to the Gentiles by his own people who should have recognized him as Messiah. He couldn't be anyone else given his peculiar power. And yet, despite all of that, in hatred, they handed him over to the Romans who tried him and conveniently condemned him to death. They, of course, didn't care who he was. As far as they were concerned, he was just a nuisance. So they might as well just hand him over to death to be crucified, especially if that's what the, the baying mob wanted. Can you imagine that day when Jesus stood trial? Having spent years of his life healing people, teaching people, 
perfectly going about God's work. And yet the result of all of that is a, a, a crowd of people and they are, they are obsessed with only one thing, crucify him. Crucify. What is it that possesses people to have such hatred against Jesus? I don't understand it. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, does it? The way that they, they turned against him so quickly and so vehemently, so passionately. There was nothing else on their mind. They had one objective and that was, it didn't matter what Pilate said. You remember how Pilate said, well, I think of this again. I mean, do you really want this? What has he done anyway? And they said, we're not listening to this. We want him dead. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? The way in which they, they, they turned against him with such ferocity. The kind of ferocity that's described here. The bulls, the lions, the dogs. They're behaving like animals. Blind hatred. And where is God in all of this? God was absent as far as David was concerned. He couldn't understand why God wasn't intervening to help him in some way, especially given the relationship that there was between Israel and Yahweh. He felt that, that if Yahweh was going to be true to his word, then surely he should honor his commitment to his people. And if the king, if his covenant king was in trouble, then surely Yahweh would do something to rescue him. Well, actually he did, but not at that precise moment. But in Jesus' case, there really was a forsaking. I'm not saying that Jesus ceased to be God. And that the father ceased to be the father. That's not the way it was. And nonetheless, that as Jesus hung on the cross, he hung as our sin bearer, our sacrifice. And God the father, we've just sung it. The father turned his face away. How can he turn his face away from his own beloved son? Because at that moment... The beloved son, he who knew no sin, became sin for us. He took out guilt on himself. And carried that guilt. And suffered the consequences. Now, I don't know about you, but I cannot imagine what the weight of that guilt... I can only think of my own sinfulness. It takes me all my time to think of my own sinfulness. And how Jesus bore my sin. How can he bear all of our sin in this room tonight? And then extend that to all of his people all over the world at every time. It's unthinkable. We can't understand it. But that's what happened. And as Jesus became that sin, the Father turned his face away and that is why it was in that context in that darkness in that dereliction that jesus cries my god my god why have you forsaken me and so this psalm helps us to understand doesn't it 
the sufferings of Jesus from the inside. In a similar way to the chapter in Isaiah 53, again written hundreds of years before Jesus, and yet so accurately describing the sufferings of Jesus from the outside. Psalm 22 I'll tell you, I'll give you a good exercise for this evening. Read Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 together. You've got the outside in Isaiah 53 and you've got the inside in Psalm 22. So you'll know it from Jesus' perspective. It's like he's writing it. He did write it. We believe in the inspiration of Scripture, don't we? We believe that this is God's Word. So... So Jesus is, is, is writing these words in from the perspective of his own sufferings on the cross to give us something of an understanding of the darkness and the agony that he went through. Of course, that's an agony that we will never, we will never understand. Because not only does the Father turn his face away, Jesus suffers the wrath of God. The anger of God, the righteous anger of God, and he takes it in full for us, instead of us, as our sacrifice. And what that means is that because Jesus paid the price for our sin, tonight we are free from sin. God has forgiven us. He has washed us. Not only so, he, he has taken that perfect righteousness of Christ and he has made an announcement that we are righteous. We possess that righteousness of Jesus Christ this evening. We are the most privileged people in all the world. And we ought to be the happiest people in all the world because Jesus has paid the price for our sin and he's done it in full. And this psalm helps us to understand something of what he went through. We'll never do it. We'll never be able to understand. We can never enter into the being of Jesus. That's impossible. And yet there's enough in this for us to get a glimpse of what he went through in order for us to be set free and because he loved us with that extraordinary love and he placed it placed that love upon us well very quickly then the third the third context in which i want to see is is the new testament context because all of a sudden there's a change isn't there in verse 22 two-thirds of the psalm is is about the suffering and then the last third of the psalm there's this there's this explosion of praise and worship and joy and 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 gospel proclamation i just want to say uh, one i just want to make one or two observations about the the last part of the psalm just so so you'll be able to take it away for our encouragement this evening it's it's a future it's where david is somehow able to see into the future and the lord is able is is able to pronounce to us he's able to to leave us in no, uncertain, no uncertainty as to, as to the fact that his death will result in a worldwide movement in which people will come to know him as their saviour. 
Let's look at some of the things just very quickly then and we're just going to leave it at that. First of all, I want us to see that the future is singular. Verse 22, I starts off with I. Same person talking. Originally it was David. But we're looking at it through the eyes of Jesus. I. He, uh, He was dead. He died on the cross. He really did die. David didn't really die whenever he's describing. But Jesus did die. And yet... He's able to say, I, why is that? Because he's risen. Because he's, three days later, the grave was empty. And because there is a future, because the, 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 the story was not finished with his death and his burial. And he tells us, I will tell of your name to my brothers. So this is what he's going to do. We very often think of, of the work of Jesus as finished. And in a sense it is, of course, his Death on the cross is payment for our sin. It is finished. But there's another sense in which the work of Jesus is not finished. Jesus rose again to continue his work. Not paying the price of sin. That's already been done. But he continues in his word. We believe he's here tonight. We believe that he's present in the person of the Holy Spirit. We believe that he's risen. He's ascended to the Father's right hand. And what is he doing? The Bible tells us that he's making intercession for us. He's ruling and reigning over his church, over his people. He has keeping his own pastoral eye on his beloved people. And when his, when the gospel is proclaimed, he's proclaiming it. It's his work. We're doing his work in telling others about the Lord. And then secondly, I want you to notice that the future is plural because very often it starts with I, but, but it very quickly it transforms into the plural. I will tell of your name to my brothers. And then there's a congregation. His brothers are not his earthly brothers. His brothers are the people who have been brought into his family by believing in his name. And of course, that includes the brothers and the sisters. But it turns into a congregation. What happened? 50 days after the resurrection, Peter stood up filled with the Holy Spirit. He just told them what Jesus had done. And 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus. What a day that must have been. But that's been happening ever since. That was only the beginning. As the disciples spread out. And as they faced the persecution. And they themselves faced the wrath. And the anger. And the frenzy of the Romans and everyone else who decided that they hated the Christian faith. Nonetheless, God was at work sharing with people, bringing people to know him and drawing men and women and boys and girls to know the Lord Jesus Christ. So the congregation grew and spread. Thirdly, the, the, the future is worship. All you who fear the Lord, verse 23 Praise him. The result of evangelism, the result of the, the, the disciples going out to make disciples of all nations was that as people came to know him, they gathered, they sang, they prayed, they broke bread. They remembered his death because there was this, this, this miraculous power now, the power of the Holy Spirit that brought them all together and that anointed them with power and so that they had never experienced anything like this. The joy that they knew in their, 
their sins were forgiven and they, they were given newness of life. They were resurrected men and women. They had never, they had never experienced anything like it. And the result is always the same. It's worship. Praise to God. We want to make him the focus of our attention because, because he's done something for us that no one else could do. Verse 27. I'm running through this. I know the future is global. It's global. Look what it says. All ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Now, I don't know what you make of that verse. I don't know what millennial position you take. I better be very careful in the company that I keep tonight. But isn't this a wonderful verse? Let me read it again. See what you make of it. I'd love to have a wee debate with some of you. Maybe you'll agree with me. I don't know. All ends of the earth will remember. Wouldn't you just love for that to happen? There we have it. So tonight, why don't we pray the word? Why don't we regularly pray the word? This is an, if this isn't an incentive to pray for mission, I don't know what is. But all ends of the earth, you know, if, 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 if we talked about this a hundred years ago, we'd have been thinking about Africa and India and China and all these places that had never heard the, the gospel, right? Tonight, we're talking about Scotland. We are praying that the Lord will revive his work in Scotland. Wouldn't that be something? Do you believe he can do it? I'm glad. Wonderful, wonderful. I think we're all agreed on this. All ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. How are they going to do that? Well, as the psalm tells us, verse 31, I know I'm skipping to the end. We don't have time to go through it in detail. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. And the message is that he has done it that's it that's the gospel he's done it they tell me i'm not a hebrew scholar by the way but they tell me that another way of translating these last words is it is finished that's what jesus said on the cross just before he died It is finished. In other words, the price of sin has been paid. Everything that God needed to do for your salvation has been done. It's all, it's finished. It's complete. There's nothing more for us to do. We need to go and tell. We need to be assured of that ourselves. We need to praise God for it. And we need to rejoice in it and make that the center of all of our worship every Lord's Day. And we need to share that message with a lost and a dark Scotland this evening. And I don't need to tell you how lost and dark our world is. But if God can save us, he can save them. Our Father in heaven, we thank you.
so much that we have been allowed access into the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can pray with confidence for the salvation of souls. And that's our prayer this evening. Strengthen us, we pray, in our resolve, in our witness, and in our worship. And Lord, bring us back, as you've done this evening, to the place where our sin was atoned for. In Jesus' name, amen.